Um, good. Welcome, everyone. Hopefully you're having a good weekend. Uh, not as good as the Kastners, um, who hot and fresh back from Taylor Swift, right? How was it, y'all? It was amazing. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm impressed to see you all. I thought, surely. Oh, yeah, you went on Friday. Okay, good, good. Well, good. Um, so, yeah, as Ben said, we are, we're continuing series uh, here at Mosaic through the book of Ephesians. Our, our mission here at, Ephe- in, in, at Mosaic is to unite people in the way of Jesus. And so we are, we're a community where people can bring hard questions about life and faith, um, hard and difficult situations that they may be facing, going through. And we're honored to have you all here as we get to walk alongside with you and uh, through those difficult circumstances. And so we are jumping into a text today, as as Ben said, that is, it's provoked plenty of questions throughout the years. In fact, Ben was actually supposed to preach today, but decided he'd rather lead worship or he was needed to lead worship. So I get the hard passage. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. And then he dressed like me. So I don't, I don't know how to take all of that. But anyway, here, here we are. Um, so, so we are, we're continuing a, uh, a flow of thought from the Apostle Paul that Ron Goodman, one of our elders, started last week called the Household Codes. And today, uh, we are entering in probably to one of the most uh, provocative uh, sections of the New Testament in, in, in the entire New Testament. And we, wanna, we want to mine that out. We want to lean into that because... We know that scripture throughout the the years, throughout church history, has been uh, misapplied, misused, twisted in various ways. In fact, um, many of us know who Thomas Jefferson was. He's famous for many things. He was a founding father. He was the third president of the United States, the, the author of the Declaration of Independence. And as a son of the Enlightenment, he had a hard time grasping the miraculous elements of the New Testament. He really liked Jesus, thought Jesus was an ethical teacher, had some great morals to, to teach people. And so what he did was he went through the life of Jesus through, through the four Gospels of the New Testament and took his penknife and cut out every reference to angels, to miracles, to demons, anything supernatural. That, that didn't fit his enlightened worldview, and he cut it right out. And the product of that is a philosophy of the morals of Jesus that he wanted to, to pass on and give uh, to people. It's called the Jefferson Bible. So Jefferson used scripture and, and, and twisted it, in fact, even though he was smart, enlightened, wise guy, founding father, twisted scripture to fit God into his box so that he could understand God, so that he could understand Jesus. Several decades later, another version of the Bible was drafted, also missing key versions, verses, and even entire books of the Bible were taken out. British missionaries sent to convert enslaved people took out references to freedom, emancipation, jubilee, equality, and, and so on. Thus, the slaveholder's Bible was born, removing up to 90% of the, the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. 
including verses such as Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It took that out so that those enslaved and literate wouldn't cause trouble, it wouldn't cause an uprising after hearing about the equality and the liberation that God intends for all of us. And demands, uh, and, and so that these enslaved people wouldn't demand their God given freedom. So the Bible has been misused to subjugate others for personal gain. It has been used to fuel a materialistic worldview that's anti supernatural, that diminishes the mystery and the majesty of God. And this, this untold amount of harm that it has done is quite unconscionable. One of the reasons I like to quote commentaries, you'll notice that, that me and Ben does it and a lot of us do it, uh, I like to quote outside sources because I like to approach scripture teaching like math class. Remember math class where the teacher says that's the right answer but show your work? I like to show you my work. I like you to know that I didn't come up with this on a Friday night with a glass of Pinot and just thought, oh my gosh, this is brand new and I want to teach everybody. Guys, if I'm, and, and gals, if I'm teaching you new doctrine, you have my full permission to go, nope, I am super suspicious of that. Like my boys say, you were sus and you need to go, okay? <laughs> you have my permission. You need to check my work because when you stand before Jesus and if you say my pastor said, no, that is not going to hold water with the creator of the universe and the author and, and inspirer of the Bible. You need me to show my work because you need to do your work that you're believing true doctrine and applying true doctrine. And we somewhere along the way aren't twisting this to apply it to our own, to, to empower ourselves over and beyond others, especially. We need to be a community that does its work by showing its work. That this is how we've gotten here. That I love how Eugene Peterson talks about commentary. Because you might, you might look at a commentary and go, oh my gosh, there's like way smart people that write and read that. I'm not qualified as one of those. But anyway, uh, Eugene Peterson says about commentaries, it's like, it's like a group of buddies after watching a football match. And they go to a pub and get a pint and talk about all the highlights. That's what commentaries are like. It's like a group of friends that go, can you believe that? That was amazing. And so that's why I love digging into these sources, not because we can't hear the Holy Spirit for ourselves about what God is trying to say through his word, but because we need to be able to back it up because there is a safeguard of church tradition that has been passed down. And there's not that God isn't giving us new insight and new ways to, to apply it, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we want reality. We want truth at any cost, especially to the cost of our pride, right? And so we want to sit under his teaching. I don't stand before you under my own power. It's only the power of God's word and his spirit that I have to offer, okay? You don't want my opinion. My, my family can tell you that. They don't want my opinion. They want truth. They, they want Jesus, okay? So that's why, because for so many decades and centuries, the church has used the Bible to harm people, and it ought not be so, okay? So let's lean in. Let's lean in and not rip out hard parts 
or parts that don't support our worldview, let's actually lean into these difficult parts of Scripture and ask, why would you put that in here, and how does that apply to my life and our world today? Okay? So, the beginning, as I said, of Ephesians 6 is a continuation of the household codes that we started last week in Ephesians 5. Okay? Um, Ron actually even explained in the Greco-Roman world that the household was structured according to a hierarchy. And Ephesus was a part of this Greco-Roman world, so that was the air that they breathed. It was the culture that they grew up in, is that they expected everything to be according to this hierarchical structure. And the paterfamilias sat at the top of this hierarchy, at the top of this pyramid, and his word was gold. Everyone had to do what he said. The father held the most power, literally held the power of life or death over his family. He, he could cast out his children if they were, they, they were not male, if they were, they, they were baby girls and he didn't want the baby girl. He could expose her, send her off to the, 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 the local dump, and, and she would die. He could, he could throw out a, a, a disobedient servant. He could throw out his wife, divorce her. And Jewish culture, which Paul was a part of, was very similar, where the, the, the father the, was the head of the household, was the one that held all the power, and, uh, and only owed his wife in Jewish culture uh, the right to a, a roof, so, so protection, uh, food, uh, sustenance and the ability and expectation to bear children, uh, especially male children, male heirs, to pass on the family name. That's all a husband owed a wife. And so we saw last week how Paul upended that arrangement, challenged it, and, and even like worked within it to reframe how husbands ought to love their wives and sacrifice themselves for it. So today... This, we want to know, against this backdrop, how pervasive this kind of thinking was and what Paul is speaking to in the language that he chooses to use to continue upending and subverting that culture. In fact, um, one commentator in, in a book called Jesus and Other Men said the ancient Greco-Roman gender system formed a hierarchical scale. The hierarchy of masculinity was not so much a gender hierarchy as a hierarchy of degrees of humanity. Can you believe that? The hierarchy also took on cosmic proportions since masculinity was considered more divine. At the top of the hierarchy were the exemplars of hegemonic masculinity, free, elite, adult male citizens. Below them were others who could be categorized under the common term unmen. These included not only women, but also boys, slaves, effeminate males, eunuchs, and, quote, barbarians. Now, we see this same line of thinking in our world today. And unfortunately, there's still a patriarchal system alive and active even in the church that thinks it's more divine to be masculine. I mean, how, how many books? I, I mean, there, there's, we, we live in this confused world about what is a man, what is a woman, what is good, what is bad. And there's all kinds of perspectives on these things. Toxic masculinity. Is it okay to be a man at all? Is it okay to be a woman at all? And so we have to wade through this. And so understanding, we're looking through our lens of, of our culture today, and we're reading back into the Bible, often superimposing our lens, and, and Paul is writing through a certain cultural expectation as well. And so there's, 
it's like there's two ends of a, a, a telephone, game of telephone, and we're in the middle trying to make like sense of, of overhearing two conversations happen at once. And so that's why we need to sit under the scripture, understand where Paul is coming from, and understand what assumptions we're even bringing about what it means to be masculine or feminine in our world today, okay? Uh, so Paul speaks directly to this culture where masculinity is basically worshipped. And he says this in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All the parents said, amen. I'm just kidding, kids. We love you. We are so glad you were here. I'm not kidding, but I am kidding. You know what I mean? So anyway. Um, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Quote, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. He continues, Father, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So as we will see, Paul doesn't directly reject any kind of hierarchical approach to family. He, in a way, undermines it. He works within it without upending it totally. But he does some really... Uh, really interesting things. Yes, he does tell children outright to obey their parents, but the fact that he addresses children at all is scandalous in his culture. The fact that he writes directly to children, that, that's not a thing in the ancient culture. Only men needed to know the orders from on high to dole them out to everyone under him in the hierarchy. And so for Paul... To speak to children at all assumes a few things. One, that they're going to be in the church. They're going to be an active part of church life. To hear the letter being read and circulated around means that children are there. And it means that Paul has elevated children as high as mothers and fathers. They are equal in the kingdom of God. Children that know and follow Jesus are co-heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. That totally upends the culture, the Greco-Roman and the Jewish culture that thought everyone was the man's possession. Paul says, no, 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 God doesn't show that kind of partiality. They're your equals. They're your sons are your brothers and your daughters are your sisters. So treat them as such because they're mine, is what God says. Do you see how scandalous this is? That he would speak to this culture, but totally flip things upside down? So then he speaks to the, 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 the fathers, the leaders, supposedly, of the household in that day. And he tells them, he gives them instruction for fatherhood, for serving and caring and loving for their children. Fathers, don't exasperate. Don't provoke. Don't frustrate your children. Boys, you can take that to God and to me. The Bible says, Dad, don't frustrate me. That's what it says. That's what it says. Fathers, especially, because we have this self-revelation of God as a father, bear a lot of response. Surely, both parents bear a lot of responsibility for the marks that they leave on the soul of their children. But fathers bear much responsibility. 
Because God has self-revealed himself to be a father, okay? In the movie The Darkest Hour, uh, which was a movie about Winston Churchill during the early days of World War II, King George VI, in a, in a moment of vulnerability and, and the, the desired connection with his prime minister, asks Churchill about his parents. Were you close to your parents? And Churchill tells him a little bit about his mother, and then and he kind of goes on for a couple minutes about his mom, and you can tell there's a lot of affection there. And he says about his dad, my father was like God, busy elsewhere. And you can hear that pain sitting behind the words. See, fathers represent God to their children, the father's heart. And what we often think about God is what we first see and experience in our own dads. And it's not to say, it's not to diminish at all the mother's role in the family. That is just to say, say there is a gender difference and there is something. I, I don't know exactly why, if you were to ask me about why is God uh, seen as a father. God doesn't actually have gender at all, uh, but he has self-revealed himself as a father. Maybe, maybe to undo all the masculine worship throughout the history of the world, maybe to set things right. And then he has passed that on to dads to say, you and your families represent something special and can reveal my love to them. So it's a great honor. It's a great privilege, but it's a great burden of responsibility that dads have in their family. Mike Glenn, a a pastor and an author, says this, My dad was a child of the great American dream in the best sense of this term. To hear dad tell it, being called poor would have been a compliment. Dad used to say that his family was so poor that on Christmas morning, they would sit around and exchange glances. He says this, the Apostle Paul, and he, this is a beautiful blog that he wrote um, uh, it, where he talked about his dad worked three or four jobs. He, he, his bo- mom would send him to bed at night, but he wouldn't sleep. He would wait for, to hear his dad's footsteps, and the rhythm and pattern of his dad's footsteps were like burned into his heart. He just loved his dad so much. So he says this, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that fathers shouldn't frustrate their children. That's a pretty low bar for fatherhood. <laughs> It really is. Uh, Paul seems to be saying, Dad, the kids will be fine if you don't screw them up. While it took me a long time to get what Paul was trying to say, I think I finally understand what he was getting at. I think Paul is saying, Dads, don't make it hard for your kids to believe in God. The Bible says that God loves you like a father. Don't make it hard for them to understand that kind of love. My dad did that. He made it easy for me to believe in God. It was easy for me to understand a father's love. God loves me like my dad, just bigger. So Paul now concludes his household directives with what could be considered one of the most troublesome portions of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. He says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, what do we make of this? Why 
wouldn't Paul take the opportunity to rail against human slavery? And why wouldn't God speak to liberation that could have avoided the human horrors of suffering and all of its repercussions throughout history? So, first, and this is, I'm going to do a not great job because this is really hard to speak to this with compassion and to get at the culture in a way that satisfies. I don't, and I'll talk about this here in a minute, I don't think this is satisfactory, but it's my best job to put forth an understanding of where Paul is coming from. So first, we should understand that slavery as we understand it, the race-based chattel slavery that went on for over 400 years right after America was colonized, is not, it's quite a bit different than what Paul saw active in his day. Under the banner of slavery, there were several different categories that they all kind of subsumed into that uh, banner. There were variations that involved conquered people being in perpetual servitude to the empire. There was debt repayment. Someone would fall in in debt, borrow some money, something like that. Um, There was punishment uh, to the government. Uh, And there was also voluntary servitude as an almost family member. Um, we, we can nearly assume, we, we, we can come close to assuming that the latter is what Paul has in mind when he talks about the affection and the relations that, that slaves and masters have back and forth. And so the, the, we reading this, though, in America uh, 2,000 years later with the backdrop of chattel slavery still haunting us as one of America's original sins, it's hard for us to, like, hold all that together in tension. But... I think we must try. So against this backdrop that, that several things were considered slavery in the ancient Near East, New, uh, New Testament scholar, really Bible scholar, N.T. Wright says this, did Paul believe that slavery was a good thing? What do we make of it all today? The answer is that Paul could no more envision a world without slavery than we can envision a world without electricity. Most of what the modern world takes for granted, television, computers, and a million lesser inventions, are impossible without electricity. And yet, for most of human history, it was unknown. In the same way, the way Paul's world worked was through slaves taking a vital place in most households except the very poor. So, though this is a really common explanation, he's, he's within kind of the main thrust of uh, New Testament scholarship when he says it was just that common. He didn't even think to like try and overturn it. That's a common explanation, but really to be candid, it's insufficient for me. Like I'm not settled in my soul that that's a great explanation. I take it. I say, okay, but the the excuse of, well, that's just the way things were in Paul's day and he can't imagine, it's just just what it was, I don't like that, yet I have to sit in that because I can't myself think of a better explanation for why Paul would not upend the whole system, right? I know that, that the New Testament, the apostles, Jesus, they didn't really get involved in politics. Like, they didn't get the vote for the emperor, right, and try and overturn stuff or, like, get their tax legislation passed through the Senate. That wasn't a thing. So I get that. It was this, this um, they, they were seen as this, this um, uh, New Testament, another New Testament scholar calls it the patient firmament of the early church. It was just this deposit of leaven, uh, of yeast that kind of built up underneath the empire's nose, right? And so they didn't go overt 
uh, uh, influence. They went more covert underneath through service and love of one another. So, so I understand that. I just don't really like it, and I have to just sit with that because it's one of those mysterious things that I will one day get to ask Jesus, like, hey, tell me about Ephesians 6. Tell me, hey, tell me about Ephesians 5. You know, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. Like, tell me about that whole thing. Why couldn't you have just, like, started over from scratch with something brand new? Because it really seems like we could have avoided a lot of pain in human history if you would have done that. That's just my little old Josh Siders in Manhattan, Kansas opinion. But Jesus, what say ye to that? And I'm sure he has some really great insight as to why his, as the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, has a great plan for not just my life, but all of human history. So that, that's where I'm at in this tension of like, I understand it, I don't like it, and have big questions for God when I meet him face to face. So that's, that's where I sit. Maybe you're in a similar place of just being like, if I could just totally pull a Jefferson and take a razor blade, this would be the section. Just get rid of it. Never read it in church again. That whole submit to husband. Yeah, let's do that one too. And let's just love each other and do, because this is all couched in, uh, uh, in, in Ephesians, I, I think it's 521, submit to each other. That is the whole thrust of these household codes, is it really is about mutual submission being worked out among family and among extended family and even into workplaces. So that's, that's where we sit. So Paul did not wholesale denounce slavery, but he did disrupt its power in the Christian home using its own framework. Just as he gave rights to children... And said that God shows no partiality between, between men and women and their kids. He shows no partiality between slaves and their masters. So he, he addresses them, which he assumes then, right? Just with children. He assumes that, that either household servants or enslaved people or slaves or whatever we want to call them are going to be a part of the normal church community life hearing the word of God preached. That's why slave owners ripped this out of the Bible because this was such an upending of that social system to elevate slaves as equal to the paterfamilias, to the slave master, the slave owner, was scandalous in that day and age. And that's exactly what Paul does. And, and it's super almost like offensive. You have to understand this, that Paul addresses children and slaves before the men. You know, this was such a masculine worship culture that men always went first. It was just assumed that way. And Paul is basically like, sit down and I will get to you, but I'm going to talk to these precious brothers and sisters first. And then I'll be back for you, right? So that, that is what's going on behind the scenes. So he gives them, enslaved people, equal rights, equal responsibility, equal care in the kingdom of God. And so, as Ron mentioned last week, the most helpful way for us maybe to grasp this and apply it, if we're looking for like, the Bible is not just information, but it really is for application and transformation, is to understand there are pieces of this that we can take for ourselves in working relationships, 
in, in our, between bosses and, and, and those who are hired, there is a dynamic that we can grab onto. That's why we don't rip it out. We, we don't rip it out of the Bible because it is the inspired word of God. There is some, some reparation, some repair that actually needs to be done in relationships that have been affected by this. And because there is something in our day and age about how we treat those who e- either work b- uh, underneath of us in, in the common day workplace environment or those that we submit to who are our supervisors, directors, bosses, and so on and so forth. So I think these things, they, they raise a couple questions that I want to address two of them specifically for us, okay? For us today, in light of what we're hearing... Paul, upending social structure, uh, so, social structure, elevating voices, showing mutual respect and submission across the board. There are two questions that I want to get to today and ask of ourselves. And those are, how will we use our influence? And what will we do about bad leadership? Right? First, the first question, how will we use our influence? We should recognize that we live in a time and in a place that when compared to Paul and his listeners, we have tremendous freedom, wealth, and agency. I mean, undreamt of in the history of the world before America, before this developed uh, affluent culture that we live in. Even the brokest of college students among us would be seen as living like kings and queens viewed from the impoverished those that were active in the early church and who were poor and um, homeless and, and living, you know, less than paycheck to paycheck. You, and, and that's not to say to, to denigrate or downplay any rough life situation or, or difficulty that you're enduring right now. It's just to kind of put it in perspective about the kind of life that we live. I mean, I think the majority of the world's population, over half, lives on less than $2 a day. Right, like that isn't to downplay our any of our financial struggles, but it is to kind of right size it as we compare ourselves, especially when we read scripture. So that is to say, we have influence. You may find yourself, probably find yourself, in a position of what if you want to call it responsibility or power leadership influence. You will exert some kind of influence over others. In your life. And the question is, how? How do I intend to use the responsibility that's been given to me? Will I use it to help other people? Or will I hoard power? Will I keep it to myself? Will I push others down? Will I run the rat race and trip as many people in front of me as I can to get ahead and just say, well, that's, that's just how it is in America. You just... You have to burn the candle at both ends, and, you know, it's, it's, it's every man or woman for themselves here. Will you use your power and your influence as a parent to provoke and frustrate your kids, to just have minions that you order around, or will it be different for you? Maybe you didn't have this model for you. Maybe you had a string of bad bosses and, and bad parents and in-laws and, and all sorts of people, and you're just like, I don't even know what, what I would do differently. I'm just doing what I've been taught. Well, the Scripture asserts itself, and the voice of Paul, the voice of the Holy Spirit says, do you want to break that cycle? 
the cycle of meism, the cycle of consumerism, just hoarding and collecting, getting more, and, and entitled, feeling entitled to what you deserve because you didn't have it growing up. What's that like for you when you experience a little bit of power? Sometimes God will test your character by giving you power and influence. That will reveal your heart. Your character is revealed, in fact, by how you treat those with nothing to offer you. Your character is revealed by how you treat those who can't add to your charisma. They'll never be featured on your Instagram reel. They can't give you a promotion. It's those that serve you coffee. It's, it's those that mow your lawn. It's, it's those that bag your groceries. How do we treat them? That, that's who we are. That's our character being revealed. Okay? Here's what we want. We want for, for them. We want to make it easy for them to believe in a loving God because of how we treat them. Don't we? Remember what Mike Lynn said? He said, fathers, don't make it hard for your kids to believe in a loving God. I would say that's the same no matter what position of influence that we have. Don't make it hard for people around you to believe that God loves them because of how you treat them. Jesus says this in Matthew 20, verse 25. Uh, he says, he called his disciples together. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It, they hoard power and they just hold it over and above in an unattainable stratosphere that nobody else can get to. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. You hear the echoes of husbands, love your wives as Christ laid down his life. Do that for your families. Masters, treat your slaves with respect and dignity. Fathers, don't frustrate your children. Love them, care for them, etc. How will you use your power and influence? Because that, that either leads people toward God or away from God. Okay, the second question, something also we need to wrestle with. When faced with a leader who doesn't represent Jesus well, how do you respond? Sometimes it's a boss who isn't a Christian. They don't share your values. They're not trying to. They, they are the summation of all the fallen things that you can think of that, that, that fill in and represent a boss. That's who you work for sometimes, right? But, I don't know, this might be worse. Bosses that are Christian and are supposed to represent Jesus and your values, and they don't. I don't know which one I'd rather have, right? I don't know which one I'd rather. I've had, I've had all kinds, just like you have. But those interactions also, they reveal. They reveal your character. Now, let me pause. Let me say, I'm not talking about unethical or abusive leaders. Um, that's a different conversation that would include involving the authorities, okay? I, I, think, uh, I think some of us have probably worked for people like that or, or engaged with people like that. That is not what I mean. I'm talking about the everyday people with everyday issues of life and soul work that still need to be done. I mean, 
lots of people need therapy. I think everybody needs therapy, right? And in our world, it's helpful that the therapy world has given us some language about what's going on in the soul. Um, but we can overdo it that, that, uh, by assuming that every boss that we disagree with or have trouble with, uh, they forget your birthday or your dog's gotcha day, and he's an evil narcissist because he forgot to bring a cupcake for, for Rocky or whatever. You know, it's like not everybody is, uh, you know, has a borderline personality disorder if you don't get along with them. That's just, they might, but they probably don't necessarily. That's not helpful. Just assume everybody's evil and everybody's toxic if you don't get your way in your workplace, right? Sometimes, sometimes this is a lesson our boys are learning. Sometimes people are just jerks, right? Some people are just suck sometimes, right? I'm sorry I said sucks during a message, but anyway, uh, it's just how it is. Life is like that. And honestly, sometimes you're like that and I'm like that sometimes, right? We've been the bad boss. Sometimes we've worked for the bad boss. It's just how life works. But know this, your character is not only revealed by how you treat those supposedly under you, who work for you or offer you nothing. Your character is also revealed by how you behave when you don't get your way. When someone tells you no, what comes out? That's worth paying attention to because that's who you are. That's who's in there, right? When someone tells you no, how do you respond? When you don't get the vacation request you want, do you go on the attack? Do you, do you post the Facebook message that just tosses your boss under the... You, sit, you get in the group text thread, right? And you just kind of rail on how unfair your boss is or your supervisor. Do you smile outwardly but start planning your revenge inwardly? What, is your, what does your heart do when someone says no? I'll tell you this. If God is raising you up to be a good, kind, grateful leader like King David... He wasn't perfect. We know that. Like, he did some, like, really terrible and himself, uh, borderline abusive things himself. But overall, he's called a, God, a man after God's own heart. If, if God is raising you up to be a leader like David, I will tell you there are people like Saul standing in your way of your destiny. There are some bad leaders standing. Now, Saul was demonically influenced and threw spears at David. I'm not talking. That's bad. Like, don't let anybody throw a spear. Get out of there and call the police. That's not what I'm talking. The metaphor breaks down at some level, but it's kind of sticky if you just go, if you're a David, there's a Saul in your future, right? That works. We understand what I'm talking about, right? That is just true because God will use bad leaders to develop your character, to show you who you are. If you believe in mutual submission... Can you submit to a jerk boss? Now, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know your situation. It might be time to go. It might be time to resign. It might be time to go find a good boss to work. I don't know. But I'm telling you, if you hop from job to job looking for a better boss to work for, they don't exist. That's all you got in this world, right? It's varying levels of people that have bad pizza the night before and take it out on you with their bad coffee breath. It's just how it is in this life. And... God will absolutely use that to form your character. So you better get used to it. And you better, and he, and he also does that so you don't become a worse version of yourself and let power go to your head when you have that kind of responsibility. God uses bad leaders to make you into a good one.
Okay. So there are there, yeah, they're just they're bad bosses. There are difficult mothers-in-law. Not mine, lovey Ann, she's awesome, okay? There are HOA nutcases all over the place. There are all other sorts of people who are gonna push back, they're gonna stand in your way, and to tell you the truth, you need them to do so. Because your Instagram feed looks great. It looks like you've got warrior pose down on lock, put an umbrella drink in your hand, and you're just the Zen master. Until you're not, right? Until you're not. And that, that's what God's trying to get at. He doesn't care. Like, he loves you. He, he doesn't care about your Instagram feed and all your, your you know, influential dreams of, of travel blogging or whatever. It's like he is orchestrating, like, like <laughs> this is like bad news, but it's really good news, okay? Life is hard, and God is trying to make you a better person through it. He is trying to make you more like Jesus, not a person that's going to let power and influence and responsibility go to their head. It's like I said, sometimes God gives you power to test your character. Sometimes he takes it away to do the same thing. Because ultimately, he's not worried mostly about how much you make, where you get to travel to. Like, those things are all fine. They're not good. They're not bad. They just are. What he's trying to do is make you more like Jesus so that you can be more loving and more patient, and more kind, so that you break the cycle of sin and selfishness that's been passed on to you from generations that went before you. They all want better for you than what they were able to give you. And God will use the events of your life, yes, the the difficult ones, to show you who you are and to say, would you like to do something about that? Would you like to break the cycle of trauma? Would you like to get healing for that? so that you become a person of love, like my son. Robert Mohan, in his book, An Invitation to a Journey, says this spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Formation and character development isn't project self-esteem. The end goal isn't you being a better dude or chick. It's that you would look like Jesus so that you would make it easy for people who encounter you to know that there's a Father in heaven who loves them, okay? So, I'm going to have the worship team and the communion servers come up. And why don't you stand with me? I have two questions for you to put this into practice. I just want you to sit with this, maybe hold this in your heart, carry it with you throughout the week. Ask yourselves this. Where might God orchestrate an opportunity for my character to be revealed? And how do I plan to respond? How do I plan when I get a promotion and I have more people on my team to work with? How do I plan to respond? Or when I get a demotion and I'm working for the person that I trained, how do I plan to respond? Because God is wanting to use all of it. Okay? So we have been uh, in a practice after every message of partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's a chance for us to be reminded that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, that his body was broken for us, and his blood was spilled for the, the new promise, the new covenant, the new life 
that he is inviting us into. So every week, uh, we break bread together and we dip it in the cup. We have a gluten-free option in the middle if you would like to partake of that. Um, otherwise, if you would come up the middle aisle here in a moment, partake, and then you can even take it back to your seat however you would like. You, you want to do it a part of a, excuse me, a group of people with your spouse. However you would like to do that is perfectly fine with us. Uh, before we do that, let's say the Lord's Prayer together, okay? So repeat with me. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.